Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some pretty tough topics sometimes. Um, today, the topic's not quite so tough, at least not so emotionally tough, I don't think, but it is a topic that we need to be aware of. We oftentimes. There we go. Um, we are talking about the role of technology in abuse, in uh, intimate partner abuse, but we're talking about it not from the standpoint of necessarily just how can that technology be used um, to abuse, but we're also talking about other ways technology comes into the whole dynamic of uh, intimate partner abuse. We have with us today uh, Jen Doe. Jen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, Jen is the uh, peer education director. Well, she's actually the, uh, um, she oversees a peer education program that puts high school-aged youth uh, and, and educates them about the dynamics of, of relationship abuse. And you have come to this from uh, my alma mater, from the University of Colorado, Denver, from the Masters of Public Administration, from the uh, gender, Department of Gendered Violence, right, the program on gendered violence? Correct. Okay. So you've studied gendered violence. I have. I've studied. I have. And I'm also a survivor of domestic violence. Okay. And uh, what brought you to have an interest in the technology aspect of it? Um, I think, you know, working with teenagers especially, technology is a huge plays a huge role in their lives, and so I hear a lot of different ways that technology plays into um, intimate partner abuse as well as bullying and and just other day-to-day dynamics. Um, And then the the organization that I work with puts on an annual day-long training symposium, and this this past April, um, the focus of that was all about technology so really got to hear from a lot of different speakers and, and learn about a lot of the different ways that um, technology is used as a tool for abuse as well as positive ways that it can be used um, to you know, create a more positive online culture or even apprehend abusers in some cases. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that more. And we also have with us uh, Dr. Joanne Belknap. Joanne, thank you for coming with us. How, thank now, you, Heather. One of the co-authors of the studies that, that kind of triggered this whole topic today. What triggered your interest in the role of technology in intimate partner abuse? 
Well, thank you for having me, first of all, Heather, and also um, I'm really appreciating that you're doing this because I, like you and Jen, think this is a huge problem. Um, what happened was one of the – I'd been doing research, I think, for about 15 years on intimate partner abuse, and actually, I would just want to make a point that I like to use the term intimate partner abuse instead of domestic violence or intimate partner violence because one of my main drives is how much of this is not violent per se but is still – um, very threatening and degrading and which is uh, demeaning, which is a lot of what I, I want to talk about today. But this first started because I had this uh, funding from um, the National Institute of Justice Through Violence Against Women Act monies in Cincinnati. I was teaching at the University of Cincinnati at the time. And um, when I was going through all the police reports for 1998, so this was some time ago, and reading them, I was really struck with um, – these what police writing down things like sh- that the victim was hit with the phone. Um, these were the days when people didn't have cell phones and when uh, most phones had cords. Um, victims were being strangled with the cords of the phone um, and then having their phones stolen. And, and it was mostly anecdotal because it wasn't something that they were supposed to just check on there. So I couldn't tell how frequent it was because it just depended on whether that particular responding officer wrote it down. But it really chilled me to think that phones are this access to call 911. They're the access for the, um, for the most part, for the uh, prosecutors to call and say what's going on, or the detectives, um, for other help agencies, sisters, mothers, um, family members, um, and so that it was this real using somebody's lifeline, uh, the abuser using the lifeline to actually har- further harm her and abuse her. And so I just got really interested in that. So I would talk about it when I was giving presentations. And it was one time when I was giving a presentation, um, a a physician who worked in the emergency room said, I can't tell you how many times we see that coming in, that one of the weapons, and again, this was anecdotal, was was the phone that he hit her with in the head. Um, And so um, then uh, fast forward a few years after that, when Anda Prince and I got this grant, another, another NIJ uh, Violence Against Women Act funded grant in Denver. By then, it was more cell phones and a lot more people had their own computers and so on. But I said, let's put in here what's going on with their computer and phone access. And so that that's um, so when the the paper that we published on that, along with Ann Chu, um, a couple of years ago, and I'm happy to send this to any of the listeners if anybody's interested in looking at the article. I'm happy to um, email it to you if you want to email me. Uh, but you know, we we looked at what's going on here. So, and then when I met Jen, um, we actually met because of we were both working. Um, I, I was a member of her um, thesis committee, and and then I didn't realize she was a survivor till later. And when I heard her story, which is truly incredible, and Jen is truly incredible. But w- one of the things that happened with her too is that, and of course Jen can talk more about this, but that her abuser did not use violence for a long time until the very end. But one of the first, one of the things he did was destroy her computer. And um, so I just I feel like these things about technology are so important because they're the lifelines to ask ask, ask for help. There are ways usually of uh, phones and computers to find out when our court dates are and so on, and then we blame women when they don't show up for their court dates. But that was another thing that really struck me in the original study in Cincinnati was how many of the women, the prosecutors, would would complain they couldn't get hold of them, 
and their phones were out of order or um, they just had gone AWOL. And I just kept wondering, well, how many of these were women who'd had their phones stolen, broken, um, or whatever from their abusers? So, so I've gone on quite a bit here. I'll be quiet for a minute. Oh, that's okay. Um, I was taking a couple little notes, and uh, it, when you first started out, you were literally talking about using technology as a weapon to physically yeah. using it, the phone cord, the, yeah. the mechanical. That hadn't crossed my mind. I mean, I suppose, you know, it, it, that's not necessarily a conscious use of that technology as a weapon, but nevertheless, it's it's accessible and it's grabbed and used as a weapon. Hadn't thought of that. Um, and I'm not sure it's not conscious. Um, because oh, really? I feel like okay. some of the things that I think some of the things abusers will say is um, no one's going to be able to help you. You are completely dependent on me, and and um, and you're not going to be able to call anybody. So I th- I, don't, I don't think it's always conscience, conscious, but I think it is. And um, I go ahead. Oh, I meant that you know you were using the example of the telephone cord to, for use for strangulation. Do you think that that was literally a conscious? You know that 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 was just handy, and so he used it for strangulation. Or do you think that that was also part of a, a message? I'm using this for for my weapon because of certain reasons. I, I think I think it is either conscious or subconscious, and I don't know. But I, I was thinking when I read child abuse cases, I don't read where they use the phones to hit them so much, and I don't. Um, so I. I don't know, and you know what you hear a lot of times in child abuse cases, you'll see that they hit them with um, cords, like electrical cords. It'll you know something that they that's easily accessible, and it was easy. So I think in that case, it, that that would make more sense. But with the phones, I, and I don't know, and I could be wrong, but um, while I was writing, actually, when I was going to give present this paper um, at Duke Law School, which is the journal that published it, um, was when it was a famous case of a soccer player who um, was murdered by her, and I just forgot her name. Her last name was Love. Um, but she was she had been murdered by her boyfriend who, oh, maybe it was lacrosse. And um, and he had actually hit, her, I, one of his weapons was hitting her with her laptop. And there, oh. my reading of some of the stuff on this was there was some indication that there was things about him on her laptop. So I, I don't know, but I, I definitely think this needs more research and more looking into yeah, yeah. Huh, interesting. Okay, so, um, you know, maybe that connection isn't a, a, a real, real strong one, but it sounds like it might be there. At least it's worth investigating. Um, we were talking about this on be, before we went on air. There's so many things that we suspect, but the research isn't there. Um, I right. would love to see some sort of research institute solely on, you know, these kinds of issues so that they could fund, fund, you know, fund research and, and you know, but that's me. Okay, so, um, me too. Jen, in your experience, have you seen this use of technology uh, to abuse and at what levels? Um, yes, I mean, I think the the kind of more typical ways that we hear are stalking and monitoring um, or, you know, not giving someone access to that kind of outside communication. Um, I think the the concept of revenge porn or this, this new tool is becoming more and more frequently heard about where um, they're, for whatever reason, the the abuser will have digital images of the victim, whether or not those images were consensually taken, um, kind of 
varies, but at the point that the relationship ends, then those images become a tool of exploitation. Um, so that's that's something that I think I'm just seeing a lot more in in all age ranges as well. And then in working with youth, um, definitely sexting is a huge part of culture and there's a lot of coercive behavior that goes along with that and um, kind of a lot of status, if you will, that that kind of plays into that issue. So that's kind of, those are the most common trends I'm seeing with people that I've worked with or um, people that my colleagues are working with. Um, and then as Joanne mentioned in, in my personal experience, yeah, my computer was um, it, it wasn't actually destroyed, but he did attempt to destroy it um, in an assault that occurred right at the point of separation when I said that I was leaving the relationship. Um, and at the time, I was a student in art school. And so my computer was a symbol of my independence. You know, it contained all of these these projects that I had been working on over the course of several months, and it was very, very intentional that he went after that, even though he wasn't um, severely physically violent toward me. There were things, including he did destroy the phone when I tried to make a call, um, but then really the computer was where he focused on because that was something that he could take away from me, and he knew it would have a huge impact. So we're seeing the use of the, we're seeing abusers go toward technology, not literally as a physical weapon. We're seeing them go toward you know technology um, as a way to isolate, and then we're also seeing them go toward it as a way to punish, to um, uh, to uh, yeah. what, what what help me with the words that I'm looking for. Well, so some, in some ways as a weapon, I I would say, um, but also, so it can be physically as a weapon, but also, like, I, to me, uh, and Jen, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, I mean, to me, Jen's computer was so symbolic because it was where she had most of her work for her degree, and and so it really was this representation of her independence and her own thing that was separate from her abuser, and, and what was very important yeah. to her, what she was working so hard on. So it was, it was think, you know, yeah, go ahead. You know, the, he, there was some some part of him that knew that it wasn't okay to physically abuse me. And so that was the kind of alternative that he found that um, in, in many ways, you know, would cause more harm than having actually hit me. I mean, this was the middle of my first semester of art school. So literally I, I could have flunked out of school as a result of him destroying all of the work that I had been been doing. Yeah. And, so another so a, a form of sabotage. Yeah. I mean, uh, some uh, Chris Sullivan and some of her colleagues have talked about economic abuse, where I th- which I think fits into this, where they'll talk about things like um, the abuser – Doing things like hiding the car keys, um, or, or um, so that that their partner, their victim, is always late to work or to school, or or these different things. And I just, I think, you know, and phones are just this. Phones and computers are just this other way to do this. In our um, in our Denver study, one of the things we found was um, that a number of the women reported was their um, abusers uh, sending viruses to their phone, uh, their 
uh, laptops wow. and so on. And so um, that and and a lot of times, no, and you know, we know this. A lot of times, women will go into direct pro- poverty from leaving an abuser, which is one of the reasons that keeps them in there. But these were the kind of things and. Um, and really heartrending stories of some of the women I've talked to about them not being, able, you know, having these custody issues, and they can't afford to call their lawyers, and um, or can't call their lawyers, and uh, you know, I just it's you know, and then in the um, Denver Domestic Fatality uh, Review Committee that Jen and I both work on, um, I mean, one of the cases there, I mean, just all of them are horrible cases, but these are all domestic violence. Uh, Cases where there was a uh, murder or attempted murder, and um, and one of the cases was this woman who had um, left her abuser and had an eight-year-old son. And I, my memory is she had moved back to um, Texas, where she was from, but it was definitely out of state of Denver. And her um, ex-husband, her abuser, got to see their eight-year-old son once a month for um, the weekend, and he was. While he was there, of course, the abuser would, and I shouldn't say of course, but we see this pattern a lot of using that to try to lure her to come back to him when she called to talk to her son, and her son didn't have his own phone, so she would have to call her former husband, her abuser, and he said to her on the phone, you really need to take me back, and she said, I'm not going to, and he shot and killed their son while he was on the phone with her. So in some ways, I I think these cases can be very emotionally extreme and 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 like Jen said her ex husband punching her in the middle of the semester would probably have had a lot uh, less of a ramification than if he had destroyed her computer and so uh, my concern is that as a society we don't take this seriously we don't take the destruction of pets and property of victims seriously and the criminal legal system doesn't take it seriously, and yet they are such red flags for control and abuse, and they do have, they can have such massive ramifications. You know, while you were talking about the the, the um, man who killed his son while on the phone, it made me flash back to several years ago. Was it Jack Kerouac? There was a, a famous author who literally committed suicide while on the phone with his wife. Oh boy. You Which I think that? is very abusive. No, I don't remember well, him doing that, but that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, and I might be re- wrong here, but for some reason Jack Kerouac uh, comes to mind. Uh, so maybe I'm wrong with that. But um, at the time, everybody that I knew was talking about how this was such a cry for help, and oh, how sad, you know. And, and my red flags just were going off all over the place, going, "Why did he do this to his wife?" Yeah. And uh, and yeah. one of the things we see that really regularly in the and all the domestic violence fatality review committee see that uh, there is such a strong pattern of the men who kill their wives and girlfriends, um, including former ones. Have many of them have a history of threatening suicide, and so and then we see a lot of them actually do suicide after they kill them. But it is it gets back to some of the earliest work that um, Jackie Campbell and. Um, some other people did on uh, intimate partner homicides that that, would, that when you interview both, and I'm assuming a different sex couple here because that's what most of the research was done on, but I, the limited stuff on same-sex couples, we can see the same thing. Uh, but 
what we see a lot of times is that both of them, like a bunch of these first articles on this were called Till Death to Us Part, and these different kind of things we hear from um, marriage um, vows, which, you know, thinking about the cultural part of this, but most, a lot of the more advanced, where there's really extreme violence and abuse um, in a couple's relationship that had been going on for years, when when interviewers would ask both of them separately, what what will it take for this abuse to stop? Both the abuser and the victim, their answer would be when one of us dies. Like this is so much, nothing can stop this because it's that strong. And I'm not saying that it, it can't always not stop it. And I, I am imagining there are some people listening to this radio show right now that are in abusive relationships my experience in teaching, I've been teaching for 30 years at the college level. I do a lot of workshops and so on. My experience is that a lot of people, a lot of victims who are currently being victimized don't identify what's happening to them as domestic violence, intimate partner violence, intimate partner abuse, whatever we want to call it, unless there's actual violence when there are these incredibly controlling behaviors going on. And, and certainly phones and computers are a key way of doing that. Um, I've had student, um, college students who um, their, um, their boyfriends, you know, want all of their passwords to their email, to their, um, you know, if they have a password to their phone so they can check on everything. And uh, it's, it's a very, very controlling thing to do. And then they get, you know, and we know that abusers, one of the, the, the some of the main characteristics about them are that they are, the two main characteristics is they're very jealous and they're very controlling. And those two things go together really well too. So of course, monitoring somebody's, your victim's email and text messages and phone messages and so on is certainly an extremely controlling thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a good point. I'm a little negligent in giving out our phone number. If you'd like to join us in our conversation or if you have an anecdote or a a situation that you'd like to share with us, our call-in number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Just call in if you have a question or a comment. We also have our chat room open, and you can just go there and uh, type in a uh, a question or a comment, and we'll be happy to uh, to uh, share that with our guests. And I see we do have a couple of people in the chat room, so feel free to just come out with a, a couple of questions for us. So, okay, let's back up a little bit here. So you became interested in doing this research. Were there any surprises that you found when you were doing this research, Joanne? Um, you know, one of them was that, I, I, I mean, I've been in doing this work for a long time, and I started uh, back in, oh, my gosh, I think 1981. I started volunteering, trying to start a safe house in Graham County, Colorado. Um, and so I've been doing this for a long time. One of the things that, that did surprise me was, at the beginning, when they were first, when caller ID first became technically, technologically possible, a lot of my friends that are victim advocates and were at that time for um, women who were in abusive relationships, um, they were real, they were like, oh my god, this is the worst thing. And then it, that was one of the things that kind of like, actually, no, this is a good thing because you know that's who's calling. So I, I feel like sometimes there are these things that we kind of don't really expect. One of the other one of the things that really surprises me and continues to surprise me is we we put so much blame on women um, 
if their partners have been arrested for domestic violence for not showing up in court. We, you, the, legally, you, you see these words like a non-cooperative victim, a reluctant victim. So we see these things without looking at how frightening some of these women's cases are. But also, I mean, one of the things that just drives me absolutely crazy is we have these 911 calls, and yet they are rarely used in court. It is almost unheard. I mean, so here's this way that you don't have to put the victim on the stand. It, you know, and some of them are kids calling. Some of them are neighbors calling. And um, and and so you ha- we have this way that, I mean, all the 911 tapes are taped by the dispatchers. And, and so here's this great source of technology and um, and data evidence that we don't use, but then we blame these women when they don't call their prosecutors back. Or so those are the kind of things that that did surprise me. And I just thought it doesn't matter what these women do; they're not going to get helped. I mean, and, and that isn't completely true. I don't I don't believe that there are a lot of us trying to make this system better, including both of you on this phone. Um, but. You know, so that that was one thing I would just say that the caller ID actually, I think, and I, if Jen, if you think differently, or Heather, you do, um, I think that it's a useful thing because you can see that that's who's calling, unless of course they use somebody else's phone. Yeah, there's ways around it if they're smart enough. And that's and yeah, the sure. other thing that I think is interesting is that star sixty nine, where mm-hmm. it will just tell you who called. Yes. You know what yes. what number called you. So that you have you a might want to explain that. that to the audience too, if, if for any women that might or men who might be in these an abusive okay. relationship. Okay, it doesn't now, I think always that is good. work. Yeah, it doesn't always work because I think they can block it just like they can with anything else. But many right. times it does work. You get a phone call, and it'll be a hang up, or it'll be somebody who doesn't identify themselves. And as soon as you hang up, if you immediately pick up the telephone back, you know, open the phone again, and hit star sixty nine. You'll get a mechanical voice saying your last phone call was from this number, and it says the number. And then it'll ask you if you want to call it back and all that kind of stuff. But you'll get the number of the person who called you unless they've managed to block it. And that's really helpful as well because if you have that their number, then there are ways you can track it down to their name as well. Um, so that whole star 69 thing and caller ID are, are godsends. Um, but, again, there's ways to block it. So, right. Um, Jen has... Has it been your experience, uh, what, what Joanna is saying about the use of technology as, as a um, methodology for abuse? Have, have, you, have you seen that in your work experience? Yeah, definitely. I've seen, um, I mean, I, I've seen a whole range of things, lots of um, scenarios where an abuser would put a virus or put spyware or some sort of tracking information on a victim's computer or um, hack into their social media accounts, even create false profiles and and try to connect with the victim's friends and family um, under the guise of being someone else in order to gain access to that victim. Um, and, And also a lot of you know, breaking of the phone, which I've heard a lot of advocates say when they have a victim come to them and say, he broke my phone, they think, great, let's get you a new phone and a new phone number, and now he can't call you anymore. Like, it's it's one of those things where um, that could be a positive thing, but is is definitely a piece of the abuse. And and going back to, you know, what I was saying previously, I, I do think that if if I had been punched, say, or, or physically abused in a way that I identified as abusive, then it would have 
certainly made it easier for me to break from that relationship more quickly and cleanly. I, I ultimately did, but um, the the fact that the abuse was directed at objects and things like that really did make it harder for me to recognize what was going on because it wasn't that picture of domestic violence or intimate partner abuse that had been painted for me by media and things like that. So I I definitely agree with Joanne that this is one of these types of abuse that we really tend to downplay. And in talking with teenagers, you know, having each other's, having your partner, your boyfriend or girlfriend's passwords to their phone is completely normal. Um, That that, that is a symbol of trust and that this is something that is very normalized as, you know, we share this information because we trust each other and and things like that. Or if, you know, if my partner is wanting to monitor my phone, that's that jealousy is how I know that they love me. You're so, kidding me. That makes me so no, no. sad. Yeah. <laughs> I, that makes me I, I so sad. <laughs> I was oh. an expert witness on a case once where the, um, the abuser would um you know it would be when they were making up okay give me the um give me the password to your your what uh, your email account and he actually emailed her professor and told her professor that pretending it was the his partner saying that um her mother had died and um and that she was really upset and and then she and then her the the Professor writes back this email, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And so this woman told me when I interviewed her, she actually walked into the professor's office, and he and her abuser, you know, another college student, escorted her there to the professor's um, office. And she had written on a piece of paper, this is all a lie. I'm afraid of him. He's outside this door right now. But she said then she just became too afraid to give it to the professor, and she thought it just made it look like she was crazy. And so the professor kept saying, I'm so sorry about your mom, and she couldn't stop crying. And I, so I just think all of these, it, it, it can be so twisted. And I'm glad you brought up the suicide thing because I don't know, Jen, if you hear that with the age group you're working with, but I definitely hear it from the college students a lot. Yeah, that absolutely. when and, and a lot of times it's calls and text messages, I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill myself. If you, I would kill myself if you broke up with me. That um, so. I I think that's an incredibly abusive thing for somebody to say to somebody else. Um, the that the, you know that it's putting a huge you know even if people have been married 50 years and somebody decides to leave, it isn't their fault if the other person kills themselves. And we you know we, but again we just have such strong cultural messages about all of this. And 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 certainly it's very gendered and sexist that women are women and girls are supposed to take care of men and boys. And especially their very fragile egos, and um, and it's it's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, one of the things that that was crossing my mind here as you two were talking, I thought, you know, I I did a sh- we did a show, um, oh gosh, maybe even a year ago with the uh, hotline. Uh, it was on the anniversary for the uh, domestic violence hotline, oh, and great. they were talking they were talking about how the trends have changed so that now they have about half of their responses as actual physical phone calls and about half of the people who contact them are doing it te- through technology. Wow. So when I, you know, through a chat room or whatever, um, and, and so they were talking about how their 
um, demand has changed and how their needs have changed. Um, when I see this, I, of course, think age. It's the young people who are using technology more than the old yeah. people. But mm-hmm. is that really a fact, Jen? Is that what you see? Because um, it seems to me that with some of the older women, um, we're still, you know, they're still using telephones. They're still using, you know, uh, uh, certain technologies that are very common. So do, are you seeing, Jen, that a difference in the, the ages? You mentioned especially the young people, but is it a huge gap? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, the, you know, high school age students that I work with are, they're on their phones all the time, but mostly they're chatting or messaging, text messaging, Snapchatting. They're they're using even images to communicate with each other and using all of these different apps where even myself, I mean, I'm 32, and so I've only had a cell phone for about 10 years, but at this point I'm more likely to text someone than call them. Um, it's just yeah. more comfortable. And I actually yeah. uh, operate a text line as part of my job, so um, I often have teenagers who will, will text me for advocacy for questions versus calling a hotline. It's just it's a more accessible language for them. And in a lot of cases, there's also a safety element to that, right? There, I had one student once actually say to me, you know, if I'm hiding in my closet or, you know, whatever, I can text you and no one will know, but I don't want someone to overhear me talking on the phone to someone. So that was a really interesting kind of mm. positive twist there as well, that there's it, it can sometimes be a little bit more discreet to send a text message or something like that. And there are all of these like safety apps that are out there now as well, like Circle of Six and things like that, where you can, with the push of a button on your cell phone, you can actually alert a network of people that you've predetermined to danger, you know, some, some sort of distress. So I think there are a lot of ways that technology has positive impacts when we're talking about this issue, um, but I think we're also yeah. still trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and it also, I think, um, uh, create. You know, I mean, I can really see the positive things of being able to, you know, hide and text and all that. Um, but does it have any psychological impact? I mean, it seems to me that it would be harder to go to somebody for help if you'd never even heard their voice. Mm, I think there's an anonymity to that that's actually yeah. kind of comforting. I agree oh. with that too. I think a lot of t- I mean I, I I agree with Jen and I think that's one of the reasons having victim advocates and all these different means of addressing um accessing help is so important because and it's kind of like just how we you know hum- humans were different in a lot of ways like some, you know one of the ongoing discussions I have with my students is whether you're more likely to lash out at strangers when you're in a bad mood or you're, um, or the people you love the most. Like, you know, some of us are just feel more comfortable. I, I like to think I don't do it much anyway, but mm-hmm. some people, you know, would, are much just more likely to, when they're in a bad mood, to snap at strangers than they are their loved ones. And other people are the exact opposite. And some people, you know, some of the research on intimate partner abuse has found that sometimes some people would rather talk about it over the phone to an advocate than, than go in and meet with them. You know, other people don't want to talk on the phone. And and so I, I to me, the more we can have a lot of different things available, 
then we can adapt to much more of the needs and um, just a lot more resources of different types of technology, including the in-person. Um, how, do, how do we make that all possible? Yeah. I was reading, of course, you know, I mean, I'm older than you, Jen, and, and you know, so I'm, I'm definitely at that uh, age where I use technology and I, I, you know, I mean, I'm texting during the day and all that kind of stuff, but my gut feeling is more toward the in-person you know, I, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, for customer service, for example, it, it's bringing me to my knees that you can't actually contact a person if you have a problem with a product or a service. Um, sure. I, I, you know, I mean, it, it's just, ah, you know. <laughs> you know, you email somebody and, you know, oh, three days later you get an email back that doesn't say anything and then you have to email back and blah, 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 you know. And I am of the era where give me the phone, I'll tell this person this problem, we can resolve it right now. But my children are definitely of the era of, um, you know, why do you want to talk to people on the phone? That's just weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I understand what you're saying about that. But I also wonder about the implications. I mean, so much of what women who have gone through abuse experience happens after the abuse. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's what we're left with. It's the residue that we carry with us for the rest of our lives. Is that different if you have a person who has relied on technology for assistance as opposed to someone who got, does more of the in-person? Or do you know? Is that an impossible question? Yeah, I, I guess I don't know specifically. Um, but, I mean, I, I do think that technology gives us these opportunities to connect with people in ways that we haven't. I, you know, I, for instance, know someone who is a, chi- is a parent of a child with albinism and she has been able to connect with lots of other parents who are dealing with the same issue through Facebook groups and through different means of technology. So although isolation is often a big part of what we see in intimate partner abuse, technology can help to bridge that gap by giving people access to I don't know, other networks of people who are going through similar things where, you know, maybe you can't find an in-person support group that you want to go and attend or, or you don't feel comfortable that way. And I think often people do avoid those sorts of things out of fear of being judged or, you know, feeling like no one's going to understand their story. And so being able to do that from a distance is, is a way to protect yourself and to kind of feel things out. Um, and technology also gives you the opportunity to kind of think through what you want to say before you say it, whereas if you're on the phone, you're you're having to kind of come up with things in the moment, and if you're sending an email or a text message, you know, you can wait and you can really think about what you want to say and write out exactly how you want it to sound. So, On the other hand, then there is usually some sort of electronic track of what was done or said or the contact made and and that can also be a, a detriment I think. Yeah. I I think that's a good point. It worries me sometimes when I look at Facebook and I do feel like this is an age thing about how younger people are more likely to just throw their heart out there about their breakups mm-hmm. and and I just yeah. I I always cringe when I see that about worrying how vulnerable 
I mean, we all, feel, I mean, most of us feel like that when we have been broken up with. Um, but I'm just, to me, that's not the best place to do that unless you have a really small circle of friends on your Facebook. And even then, you don't know that somebody else can't um, do something with that. But but that's another thing we've seen on the Denver Domestic Violence Fatality Review Committee. It's like we talked about before, an abuser making a whole new fake identity and friending their um, their victim slash survivor as a way to find out what they're up to. And um, it's 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 really scary. Another thing that I just wanted to say, I think um, with the um, the things like, you know, voicemail messages or um, text messages and all that thing, it is really important to save all of those if you can. And I'm sure uh, most of the young people know this, but um, the screenshots of your phone of your text messages, you can just take screenshots and then um, like make a file of those so you don't have to type them all up and, and they're there. But, it, you know, we, I don't think we've talked about stalking yet, even though that's basically a lot of what we're talking about. Um, you know, that stalking is the most common type of stalking is of current and former intimate um, partners, and it's mostly the former ones. And so certainly the the um, social media, computers, phones are a you know really key way that stalking starts happening, and um, and that you know again the, the, some people can say oh no they're, they're, you know I'm just I'm friends with them or I just happen to be you know on Facebook with them or I didn't mean this when I texted it or whatever but the, but really being careful about all of that and learning you know how we can block people um, and so on. Janet, to your knowledge, do uh, many advocacy programs, uh, do many uh, victims' uh, assistance programs offer information on uh, how to block, how to save, how to um, how use technology um, to gather evidence? I mean, I think to the best of their knowledge, uh, Safety Net through the National Network to End Domestic Violence is really kind of the, the national leader on technology and domestic violence. And so I know that um, advocates in the agencies that I've worked with use a lot of the resources from Safety Net, um, and, and they just they have a lot of really, really great tips for various scenarios. Um, Facebook has even put out a guide for survivors of, of domestic and sexual violence on kind of how to protect yourself online. Because I think another unfortunate thing that I've seen is that once you are a survivor of violence, it changes the way that you interact with technology. Because now you have to be cautious of all of these things. You have to be careful about what information is out there about you. And that can be really disempowering for someone. Um, yeah. I worked with a victim who has done a lot of speaking um, to the legislature and media interviews in regards to her circumstance, and her perpetrator is getting paroled, mandatory parole, within the next couple of years. And so I was working with her to just kind of start safety planning around what happens when he gets out. And the first thing we did was Google her name and um, a lot of what came up was links to those media interviews. And so that was when I had to say, you know, he's going to be able to see what you've been saying if he looks you up. So you have to consider that. And for her, it was really kind of a kind of jarring to hear like, oh, I have to now be careful about what I'm saying and who I'm saying to it, where I'm saying it, because this person is going to be able to access that. 
But in fact, it's too late for her because all of that stuff is already on there. He can already see that. Yeah, and I mean, there there are ways that you can request to have that information taken down, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's essentially you just want to make yourself disappear then, which is not really what a survivor wants to do. That's, that doesn't make sense as far as moving forward and regaining your power. Well, and in, so it's it's kind of a sticky in, in, situation, I guess. Yeah, in my case, I was advised by my attorney to be very careful about what I said, what the kind of speaking I did, and and what kind of information I gave out. Um, so that sounds like I had a pretty astute attorney at the time because it was several years ago. Huh. Yeah. Um, and and it's, okay. it's also just again that double standard too that always bothers me about how you can't bring up if there's a court case his or her, the defendant's prior domestic violence, but then all then they'll just bring up all sorts of things about the victims. And we see this in rape cases, of course, too. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know, it's pretty remarkable. Well, you know, it's not a challenge because if she's the victim, she's crazy, she started it, she was... <laughs> Yeah, we have she the was supposed to control everything. Of, of, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's all her fault, you know. Um, if we, I think one of the significant things about the conversation that we're having is that we're not talking about broken bones and bruises here. Right. We're talking instead about the vast majority of abuse that occurs, which is sometimes called coercive control, sometimes it's called, you mm-hmm. know, whatever name you attach to it. And I think that we can both agree, or all three of us can agree, that we've done a really crackerjack job over the last 30 years of educating people about um, um, broken bones and bruises. I think Mm -hmm. you'd be very hard-pressed to find anyone in our culture, in our society, who thinks it's just fine under any circumstances to hit a woman or hit, you know, a partner. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think that you would find very many people who would find things wrong with this level of coercive control. And the dangerous thing that I am seeing about technology and this technological, you know, abuse via technology is that it is absolutely custom designed to continue coercive control. And I can't, I should have, uh, I should have done my homework better and, and looked up the study, but there was a study, can't remember the author, that, indica- that was a, a, a qualitative study that showed that women who had experienced physical abuse as well as uh, coercive control, as well as the, the non-physical abuse, overwhelmingly said that if they had to experience it again, go ahead and hit me and break my bones, but don't make me go through that, that again, that, that coercive control stuff again. Are you familiar with that study, or am I being too loose with my uh, No, reference? I think even, uh, my memory is even as far back as some of the, um, oh boy, Marie Tong, and I think even um, Lenore Walker, I think even talked about that too, that the cycle, that most women will say, if you, you know, you typically what people talked about was psychological abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse, and that most women would say that the psychological abuse was the worst part. And a part of it was that it, because it was so scary and threatening. And then, but other parts of it, that it, it was just really so hurtful. That And um, one of the things Lenore Walker said, I mean, God, this was, I think, in 79. She said it's as if the abusers all went to the same training school because mm-hmm. their way to be, that so many of the women that were in her um that that she was working with would say that they would say that the women were bad mothers, they were fat and they were ugly. And I mean and it it was you know, 
just to me that is so such a slice of what is wrong with culture and sexism and that so that these very very hurtful things i mean to, to call a woman a bad mother it, i mean it doesn't get much worse than that right and, and then right. in our society that's so thin fat phobia to call somebody fat, a woman fat and so on but um but the, and and one of the things that one of the researchers and i, I think uh, oh god um i think it was tk logan but i'm not positive one of the things that she talked about with some of the verbal and psychological abuse um was that your abusers i mean most of the time our intimate partners do know us especially if we've been with them for a long time better than anybody so they know how to hurt us better than anybody and and to hurt us psychologically and emotionally better than anybody so i mean you they know what our most sensitive things are that we hate the most to be criticized about and then of course that's what they'll use so even if they say they're sorry later or whatever they've already said it just like if they've already broken a bone they can say they're sorry, but they've already broken the bone. So, the, but the, those, um, and certainly to threaten to kill somebody, which the police very often don't take seriously, it's, which is just mind-numbing to me, um, how that's just seen as a verbal, whereas a slap, would be, they could be arrested. I, I saw that a lot in my own research, which I haven't done this as recently, so hopefully that's changing. But I've just been amazed at what... Um, what kind of verbal threats people can make, or you're going to never see your children again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that one's a good one. Um, you leave me, you'll never see your children again. Yeah. And then you're sitting there yeah. going, does that mean he's going to kill them? Does that mean he's going to take them away? Does that mean he's going to kill me? Does that what? Right. What does that mean? And that whole crazy-making thing that goes with that stuff. Right. So talking about, you know, that kind of, of terrorism that that goes to the core of our being. I mean, it yeah. you you when when someone treats you that way, you're left with self-doubt and and, and even saying that is just such a mild milk toast way of saying what you're left with. Um you're you're left with total questioning, total um uh, lack of confidence in any of your abilities, your way of thinking, anything. So it's really uh, just destroys you um, from within, I think, that kind of course of control. And when we're talking yeah. about using technology, what I'm seeing from your study, Jen, is that it, this is kind of like a uh, mechanical recipe book for that kind of course of control. Um, the the use of the technology. So it was interesting when we, to me when we first started out, and the first thing you talked about was using technology physically, using the cords, the thing, you know, and and mm-hmm. then uh, to move on to the, uh, the 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 core of it. Do you think any of that is conscious, or do you think it's just well, this is here, and this is what I'm going to do because this is what I know how to do? I mean, I think it's conscious. Um... But I don't. I don't think it's always conscious. Um, and I think, I think the part of using, when you know, to text something to somebody like you're the worst mother, or to put it on Facebook or, or, um, or some kind of public thing. You know, certainly that doesn't all have to be technology. But I think a lot of that technology thing. It's it's just so hurtful, and and to take something that you know we all have things we're vulnerable about. And um, so I think I think it is very purposeful, and I think you know, and it's one of those things. Okay, you can say you're sorry later, 
Um, and, you know, and that I hate that expression, sticks and stones may break, break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I mean, when we look at school bullying, I mean, most kids are a lot more traumatized from, you know, queer baiting and racist awful things and sexist awful things people say than they are from being hit. Um, you know, from being ostracized, from um, being made fun of, that the, those are hugely damaging. I keep saying that I'm going to write a book. Nobody uses title because I'm going to write this book. Sticks and stones <laughs> may break my bones, and words will hurt forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, okay. In, in cases so, of like, sorry, I was just thinking back to the like the cases of revenge porn, and um, I trying oh, to yeah. you know to find a survivor of domestic violence who's willing to speak on a panel or at an event is usually pretty easy. Um, survivors of revenge porn do not want to speak publicly. It's, wow. it's There's this element of humiliation that yep. just runs so much deeper. And it is absolutely intentional, you know, for somebody to say, if you break up with me or if you don't do this, I'm going to share this image of you with your father or your pastor or your employer. I mean, that's very intentional and can have a huge impact on on people's lives. And those never go away. So that can go on for years and years and continue to be a tool of control. Um, there, yeah, you're familiar point. with, I wish I could remember her name, but the, the slut-shaming, uh, the woman who, who uh, she just, the young woman, uh, was was slut shamed uh, on the internet, and so what she did is she started a blog post about it, and she right. just made it hers. Do you know who I'm talking about? She was on the show. Yeah, I don't. I um, can't remember her name either. Yeah, but she was on the show, and what a great, you know, I mean, she made okay, fine, and then so she just made that hers, and you mm-hmm. know what a powerful what a powerful position to take, yeah. ladies. We can't end this con- conversation without talking about. So what do we do about this? Um, I, I mean, I think what Jen is doing, to me, it is so important to start with children that we, I mean, I just how we raise our children, how we, um, what they understand. That I, I've always felt like education and awareness are massive in this. And, you know, and a lot yeah. of times we assume that, um, you know, the boys that grow up with abusive fathers are going to be abusive. But, you know, some of them, I, I've met some of them, they they saw how awful it was and they're very invested in not being like that. Um, but I, I, to me, I mean, we need to have policy changes. I, I would love to see that 911 tapes routinely used in the, in the court cases in the, um, I, and I don't know why they're not. I mean, I could, in some cases I can, you know, there aren't always 911 tapes, but it's just really unusual to have them used. I would, that's one thing I'd love to see. We need way more training of police, um, and court personnel. And I would argue victim advocates, about the nonviolent, the coercive control, including the technology and how threatening and scary and demeaning and all these things it is. So, so those are some of the things that I um, that I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. What yeah. about you, Jen? Uh, there, are, I mean, there are a couple organizations I know of that are specifically really targeting youth. Um, we brought in a speaker from an organization called. Um, I can help. So the full name of the organization is I can help stop negativity, um, something something like that. I'd be happy to share the link. Um, but they basically are an organization who talks to kids, kind of meets them where they are, 
and says, you know, we know you're using this technology. Here are the things that you need to know about. Here are the things that you need to be concerned about. And here's what you can do when you see online bullying, when you see this kind of negative behavior, kind of, you know, how to be a positive upstander and, and change the culture of the Internet especially, social media, things like that. So that's a great organization. Um, Futures Without Violence has a project called um, It's Not Cool that is a really similar concept that really encourages young people to stand up and do something and say something when they see this kind of behavior online because they are definitely seeing it more so than than I am, absolutely. Um, and I think laws definitely need to be improved around these issues related to sexting, coercive sexting especially, and revenge porn. They're one of the huge challenges is that it's very difficult to prosecute, to hold accountable the offenders of these kinds of crimes because this this has all changed and happened so quickly that we just don't have the laws in place to do anything about it. So either you're being charged with something like child pornography for sexting, um, or you're not being charged at all. And I, I think that's what we're seeing more commonly um, is that there are just no charges being filed in a lot of these cases because they don't know what to do. Um, and in some well, cases, and, and, no, and nobody's bleeding. Can be brought. Nobody's bleeding. Yeah. And we live in a very yeah. you know we 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 go after who's bleeding. We don't you know. So if, if there's if there's no broken bones and bleeding, then we don't know what to do, and it's probably not that bad. And yeah. I think it's also this victim blaming and why did they let those pictures be taken? Of course. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things that encourages me about all of this uh, conversation about technology is that it does tie in so so um, absolutely strongly with that whole coercive control thing, which is an, an area. Now, you know that Great Britain passed legislation. In Great Britain, coercive control is a crime. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great. Mm. Um, so, and it has been for about a year and a half now. Wow. And uh, the the um, the the buzz. I mean, the big conversation was, well, how do you know? Everybody disagrees. Everybody blah. How can you make this a crime? You know, but but it's working for them. Um, so why are we not doing something similar? Well, you know, because we're, I don't know. But we're all doing what we can do, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah. What if I'm a victim of this? Do do you have resources for me, Jen? Do you know? Uh, will the 800 uh, number for um, the DV hotline be able to give resources if somebody's being uh, you having technology used against them in this way? Um, possibly. I mean, I really think that most everyone that I have talked to about these, this issue will defer to the Safety Net Project at um, the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And there's a lot available online, tip sheets, fact sheets, but they're also very accessible people. Um, they, they do training nationwide, maybe worldwide as part of their job. So, you know, they're accessible for people to bring to their communities to train, um, and they're also accessible. If you have a question, you, you can call and talk to someone and, and get your questions answered in real time. Wow. Um, so, and that, again, is if I wanted to Google that, what would it be? Um, it's the Safety Net Project, and it's it's a project of NNEDB, the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Wonderful. 
Okay, so if you're out there, um, probably not going to find a lot of help from friends, neighbors uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff because we tend to uh, kind of poo-poo and minimize stuff if we're not going through it. That's my experience anyway, and I know that's a gross generalization, but that's my experience. Um, and um, but, but you can go to this resource uh, and uh, get some help, at least to start a search for some help. We always end our show with a quote, and um, the quote that I have today is uh, from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Or, or, I'm sorry, it is from the NNEDV. Uh, the, the nearly 90% of programs report that survivors come to them for help after abusers intimidated, made threats via cell phone, text messages, and email, and 75% of programs noted that abusers accused, uh, accessed victims' accounts, email, social media, etc., without the victim's consent and oftentimes without their knowledge. Intimidation, threats, and access of information about victims are not new tactics within the context of domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and trafficking. However, the use of technology as a tool to facilitate these tactics means that the harassment and abuse can be much more invasive intensive and traumatizing and i think that sums it up ladies thank you so much for being thank with you. us today um join us next week we're going to have uh, adrienne hancock talking while female how we uh women's uh language gendered language and how we um monitor ourselves how we edit ourselves as females when we're talking Thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, or Jen. Thank you, Joanne. Join us next week on Three Women, Three Ways. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.